welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. On Thursday, October 28, 2021, I arrived home. It was late at night. I was tired talking to my husband, Joseph. And he said, did you know that Governor Cuomo, former governor of New York State, was charges were filed against him for based on sexual assault charges stemming out of the allegations of forcible touching and sexual assault having to do with certain staffers? I knew that I had had a long day and I had been had my head kind of down deep into what I was doing, and I had not heard that these charges had been filed. So I quickly said, well, Joe, put on CNN, put on some of the live streaming newscasts. I want to get up to speed. So as we fixed dinner, waited for, talked about the boys and what they were doing, I waited one hour, two hour. There were no reports on these charges being filed. In fact, you know, I expected to see some type of breaking news update or charges of discussions about the arrest or charges, and I got nothing. I then went on to my laptop and began to search, and I did get one or two synopsis about Governor Cuomo's the charges. One was from NBC News 4 report, and it said that, in fact, Governor Cuomo, former governor, I'm just saying Governor Cuomo, was facing misdemeanor charges. And for those of you that don't know, in New York State, there's really three levels of charges that can be brought. A violation, which does not carry any type of heavy or severe impact. There's no, you will not have a criminal record if you are found guilty of a violation. Then above that are misdemeanor charges, which does give you a criminal record and you would, you may face incarceration. And then of course, your more serious felony charges. Governor Cuomo and the charges that were filed against him were based on sexual misconduct, misdemeanor charges, and come out of when it is alleged that he touched a female staffer's breast under her blouse without her consent. The report from NBC went on to say that we, the public, we're not going, don't expect for Governor Cuomo to be handcuffed. Don't expect to see him marched in front of the cameras after being charged in this sex crime. In essence, don't expect a perp walk. If you don't know, a perp walk is something that's commonly done in New York and other states. It's when the accused suspect is paraded in front of the media, in front of press, the community, and it's essentially done to celebrate a high-profile arrest 
it doesn't necessarily even have to be high profile. Maybe it's a crime of a bad nature. From having worked in the criminal justice system in New York for over 20 years, I have seen that the perp walk is usually done for poor people, minorities, African-Americans. You very commonly see them in this humiliating, degrading perp walk. So we are told, don't expect this to happen. Don't expect to see there be any type of show or handcuff in relation to Governor Cuomo. Instead, what we can expect is that there will be a coordinated surrender and he will quietly be processed fingerprinted and given a date to return back to court in Albany on November 17th. The sheriff in the case in Albany by the name of Sheriff Craig Apple Sr. also made mention he was responding to different statements about how the case was being handled, how the his department had made the arrest. There were reports about how could this have happened? How could the charges being filed have been leaked to the press? And why were individuals making such a big deal about it? Well, in fact, there is no way to leak the charges being filed because the charges are a public document. So anyone, the press, someone with access could have gone on and found these charges filed against the governor. By way of quick background, the charges come out of in forcible touching, as I was saying before. This happened at an event and is combined with similar sexual assault allegations that led up to the governor's resignation. These charges, coincidentally, come, I think, about maybe 90 days or so after the governor had released his book. That book was touting and talking about his accomplishments in relation to what he had done successfully over the course of being an elected official. So that's kind of a little irony, but sad for the women if these allegations are true and if they're proven. I believe that the sheriff had said that there is overwhelming evidence, but as someone that is an attorney, believes, wants to believe, wants to hold the different phases, processes of our criminal justice system, right now there are allegations that have to be proven. Albeit footnote, there is overwhelming evidence that the governor engaged in this sexual misconduct. When I thought about how the governor's arrest, these charges were being handled with what it seemed like a level of professionalism, dignity toward the accused, and let's be honest, favoritism, and how I could not, as I waited Thursday night, waited for an update on the news, breaking news, wanted to find out more about what had happened. And I didn't see this. I immediately recalled a recent encounter and a case that I had worked on in relation to the investigation of a 17-year-old. And this 17-year-old, I had been approached by the mother to help her son as part of a program that I have, that I've been working on and building up that I call the first 24. And that is where comes out of the belief, so to speak, that the first 24 hours of any police investigation are important. They're pivotal to preserve the rights of the accused. I know that if during a police investigation, if you are a suspect and the police are able to bring you in for questioning, and during that time, you're feeling vulnerable, you're feeling as if you speaking to the police giving up your rights, 
to make statements, you believe that there's going to be a way that you will get out of this. There are promises made during that time, that first 24, that by the police, that if you just cooperate with them, everything will work out. And many times individuals unwittingly, unknowingly, and unintelligently waive their rights and they speak to the police. So after seeing that happen so many times to young, to poor, to young individuals, to African-Americans, I decided that I would, as much as possible, for free or low bono, so at a drastically reduced rate, I would assist and help individuals within that time, either pre-arrest or within the first 24. So I call it the first 24 program. So this mother had contacted me because she had, there was a car that had been left at her home that her son was being investigated by the police department. I talked to the mother about it and we had decided that a course that would go. About maybe two or three days later, the mother called me frantically. I was actually in a meeting. I was had to be pulled out of the meeting. And the mother was calling frantically saying that police were at her house. They were trying to push back her, past her, into her house, and in, stating that they were looking for the 17-year-old. She was hysterical. She was screaming on the phone. She was telling them they can't enter the house. She was actually saying, you know, isn't it true that they can't enter my home? I was, I said, please put the police on the phone. I reminded the police of this mother's rights, of my client's rights, and the fact that he did have an attorney. So I introduced myself, I identified myself as his attorney, and he would not be making any statements and that they couldn't enter the home. This child did not live there, by the way. It was very interesting, the response that I got, I think it was a sergeant at the time, to understand, I think he was, he asked maybe two or three times, who who was I? Was I in fact an attorney? And I can affirm from that, that they are in no way expected this mother living in a public housing project to have any type of connection, availability, or access to an experienced attorney. Their pre-arrest that was able to remind them of my client's rights. That shaped and that if I say so myself, undoubtedly helped that young man. I was also reminded when I thought about the charges that were filed against Governor Cuomo in reference to when they mentioned that will look public, do not expect any type of perp walk, do not expect him to be paraded for cameras. I thought about and I reflected on another incident that I was involved in in my work as a as a criminal defense attorney. And it was actually coordinating the surrender of a client because I knew and I did not want that person to be exposed to a perp walk, to the humiliation. Basically, what it does is it ensures in the court of public opinion that you're found guilty before the process begins and before charges are filed. You become, you know, there's a scarlet letter now on you. You, it's done It's part of what I would say is psychological warfare against the accused, against the client. You have your name appearing in the press. You have cameras in your face. Your family's humiliated. It's really a prehistoric medieval way to ensure that you're demoralized even before you are arraigned. You have that first encounter in the criminal justice system. So I wanted to ensure that my client did not engage in that pert walk. So I had coordinated the surrender, but yet and still this young man, African-American, even though he was surrendered, he did not receive the type of treatment that I saw, you know, over the past days that Governor Cuomo received. 
He, in fact, even after that, there was press involved. I'm not sure how that happened or who notified, but there was press involved. He ended up staying at the precinct. It was over 48 hours. It was a cold, windowless. He had no access to his family. He did have access to me, although I wasn't able to call in and to find out the status of when he would get down to be processed at what we call central booking. So he had stayed at the local precinct. So even with that surrender, this individual with of limited means still went through the undignified process that we see former Governor Cuomo and other individuals of wealth, power, statute, and of a certain gender do not have to go through. The series that I'm doing on the podcast of Legally Brief, we're looking into how to make our institutions work. What happened on October 28th with Governor Cuomo and the favoritism that he received reminds us again of a broken portion of our system of our judicial system. We're reminded of this known problem. It's flagrant. It's an open secret. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating because of the inequitable and unfair treatment that poor white and black, African-Americans and women receive, as opposed to the coddling, the favoritism, the access that we see position people who are authority figures, people who are celebrities, people who are wealthy white males that they receive when they are processed, when they have contacts with the judicial system. That's the system that we're focusing on today on this episode. Lest you think, I know that you, anyone that listens to the show, anyone that has access to any type of media attention that focuses on our justice system. If you look at by way of comparison and you say, well, Judy, is that really true? Is it a fact that if you don't have money, if you don't have authority or access to an attorney, that you're going to be treated differently? So a couple of brief examples and comparisons. John Getter, who was a celebrated gymnastics coach, in February of this year, February 26, 2021, committed suicide after being charged with 24 felonies, felonies ranging from sexual assault, allegations of rape, assault, abuse of young gymnasts, young children. He committed suicide on the way when he was alone going to turn himself into police. These allegations had been going on for years. There were several women, several gymnasts, parents, advocates for the gymnasts for years rallying and asking that charges be brought. And for months, no local authority, no state authority had ever charged. Finally, there were charges brought. And instead of police going to the home and arresting this individual, as they attempted to do with my client, he was allowed to coordinate his own surrender and make his way comfortably to the police station. And it was at that time that he had the opportunity and he decided to end his own life. Another comparison we look at is the celebrated, notorious, famous, wealthy, rich comedian, Bill Cosby. Again, for years, allegations of sexual abuse, misconduct had been an open, openly lodged against this man, this individual. The prosecutor's office, it was a state prosecutor in Pennsylvania, had declined charges for various reasons. 
And it wasn't until many years later that charges were filed. You may recall that he went through a trial and that that conviction was later overturned. I won't go into the details as to why it was overturned, but just showing comparison as to when the accusations in these cases, coincidentally, the accusations are all by women regarding sexual abuse. Not only did it take years for the charges to be brought, to be taken seriously, but then once the justice system became involved, you see there is a favoritism. There's, a, like I said before, a coddling, and there's a level of dignity that are afforded these individuals, these men of power. And that's that's the break. That's the part of the judicial system that we need to focus on. We cannot do away with our judicial system. We can't throw out every part of it. But what we can do is we can figure out how to eliminate this favoritism that lends itself to corruption, that causes individuals to feel jaded, to feel frustrated and hopeless. We cannot have our judicial system continue to descend into a pure patronizing system where judges, where people in power, where you have wardens, where you have district attorneys, attorneys, law enforcement, protect the wealthy and present to the public a feeling that this system is not going to work. Because look, if our legal system continues to be corrupted by favoritism, if the legal system in a country doesn't work, nothing will work. People will no longer submit themselves. The way that our system law enforcement work, the way that we continue to have any form of group governance, any belief that our system will work for us is based on a belief that we will submit to law enforcement, we'll come into court, we won't riot, we won't, on most cases, we won't riot, but we'll believe that if we present ourselves and if we peacefully go, that justice, the process will work. We can do a whole another episode on why we don't see the process work, but let me stay focused on this episode as to this one sliver, this one problem of favoritism and giving individuals with authority figures access, those individuals who have power, focusing just on that and knowing that if we continue to allow this to happen, our legal system, we will continue to lose faith in it. And as I was saying, if we continue to lose faith in our legal system, then no institutions will work. The legal system is woven into and serves as a foundation for not only acts of crime or if you're hurt or injured, but if you're in a corporate setting and two companies have a dispute, contracts, partnerships, even in our family settings, in divorce, in domestic violence, business, education. If you have a dispute in our electoral process, we all come and we rely on the legal system to resolve these disputes. If you continue to corrupt our legal system, then you will have irreparable cracks in every institution. People will continue to lose faith in the judicial system. And with that, you will have a complete breakdown in our societies, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our families. So what is the answer? I mentioned before that as part of this 
series, How to Make Our Institutions Work, I would talk about a method that I found to be, you know, thinking about how can I really provide some type of structured way of thinking? How do we change these huge disparities? How do we continue to not be despondent and be active in turning the tide? What I came up with is my active method. And that's a way to really put some framework around if you see a problem, if you see a place within a larger institution or process that you believe can make, where you believe there has to be change, don't just give up in frustration. Don't become distracted. We all are distracted with our everyday lives and going to work, going to school, working out, just just keeping your own self alive is a full-time job. But if you believe, if you're passionate, if you believe that there's a way for you to make a change, you, one person, can do it. There's numerous examples of how one person persevered. Maybe they didn't see a change in their life, but we all are doing this because of this great experiment called America. We're all setting out to make change that maybe we don't experience and we can enjoy, but I'm enjoying the changes, the activism that my father and my grandparents, my mother, my grandmother, and that other activists did and they didn't see, but they knew that the next generation of Americans would enjoy. So what is that method? And how can we apply it to this situation that we're discussing here, favoritism within our judicial systems? First, to become aware. That's what this show was all about. Aware that we can bring about changes. It's that higher awareness that we have within ourselves. When we talk about something, when we have discussions with even in our small communities at our dinner table, bringing that awareness. There's a power in awareness, in identifying, crystallizing the process. And that's the first step. The next step in active is the C, which is change. And change begins in your community. In your and community means your, it could be a community, the individuals you work out with. It can be the mother or fathers that you spend time with on the soccer field. But it's that change, it's that community. So first you're aware and it's a coming together and believing and then also migrating. So say you decide, here's my issue. My issue, I'm upset about the favoritism. I'm, I'm upset about the corruption within the criminal justice system. We all have access, the majority, I should say, have access to going online. Find a community that is already invested in the change you want to see. Become active in that community. And active can be, maybe you don't have the bandwidth to go out to a march or attend a meeting. So many meetings now are virtual, but maybe you can write a check. That can be impactful. Join and become a part of a changed community. So now you're aware. You're A, you're aware. Two, you are part of a changed community. The T in the active method is time, measured time. I spoke about before, there's always going to be that tension. There's going to be that pull in. You see something that's frustrating you and you want change now, immediately. I learned the other day that I, in fact, have this thing called action bias. I was listening to a talk by Brene Brown 
And she was talking about action bias. And I, for years, have lived with this, and it is a burden. If I see something that I want done, I'm like, let's go. I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to ride. And I jump in and I go. So many times, though, (laughs) after I jumped in, I go, I've jumped off the cliff. I want change. I want it now. And as I'm falling down the cliff, I said, well, wait a minute, what's happening? So that's a tension, especially if you have an activist heart and you get fired up when you see wrong. So the tension is, is knowing that change within these large systems take time, measured time. There's the famous tension that was ongoing between civil rights activists, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and so many others. Those are the two notable, where you had on one hand, the pre-Mecca Malcolm X, who was demanding change now by any means necessary. And you had supporters of and Martin Luther King, who was going about change through a nonviolent method. There's other examples, but I just crystallize and narrow that example down to show that change within our systems take time, but that doesn't mean that that measured time that it's going to take should allow you to become despondent and discouraged. The key here in that measured time is to not give up and not go away. The next step in the active process is implementing the change. How do you implement change in a large process that seems to continually go wrong? It's not serving the people it was set up to serve. It's holding other individuals less accountable, as we see here in what I'm what we're talking about in this episode. Well, that's implementing. And implementing change within any system begins at a grassroots level. Grassroots begins at your town. We're coming up this week. It's elections in many states and where there's no presidential election, but that doesn't mean that you're supposed to stay home. I think I should be airing this on the day that everyone should be getting out and voting. Go and vote. Your town council, your school boards, go out there and vote. That's the level that you see changes. Don't think that if you see these frustrating problems happening at a national level, that the change is going to happen at the national level. No, all politics are local. Changes are local. They happen in your home, in your schools, among your neighborhoods. That's where it happens. So that's how you implement that change. The next step, which is the V in the active process. And that's we, we, the public, we move from victims where we're upset, we're hurt, we're angry, and we move to being change agents. On another level, the alleged victims in this case, the women, the woman who was touched by Governor Cuomo, the allegations are that she was touched and also the other women. We already see that by speaking out, by filing, by working with the prosecutors in the case, working with the police in this case, that they are moving from being victims to change agents. And that's what we all have to do. We have to stay involved in this case. We have to periodically check in to see what's happening. I know that there's going to be other cases that are going to flood our news feeds, but pick something. 
Pick one case. If this is your thing, if reforms in the criminal justice system, if that's going to be the cause that you pick, then you can pick one case and continue to follow it. And if you see that there's any type of um, misconduct going on, contact, go back to your change community, contact, figure out what's happening, stay active in that issue, and you'll see change happen over time. The last step in bringing about change through the active method is encourage activism. Now, that's the hardest part because now, so we see that the charges are filed on October 28th and (laughs) there was some media coverage. In other instances, if there's a scandal, there'll be news reports, there's blog posts about it. There's lots of lights and cameras and actions, and that's early on. So everyone's outraged. There's a momentum. There's a movement. But you have to stay encouraged as an activist. So when the lights are off, the news feeds are on to something else, TikTok has moved on you because you've picked this issue and because you want to see change in a certain system, you stay encouraged. And you do that by connecting and reconnecting with your community. You do that by making this an item on your calendar. As adults, as um, young adults, as children, we're taught to how do we get organized? We use a calendar. I remember as a young attorney using those big calendars you put on your desk called desk blotters and you write down the coming cases and when you had to be in court and what was going on. Now I switched over to, you know, notifications on the cell phone. Make this an item. If this is your issue and you want to see change in an area, maybe you want to see change in a corporate setting because you're a corporate change agent. And there's something that you don't like there. So you want to collaborate with corporations or your company to make a change. Make that an item. If it's biweekly or monthly, that you're going to check in at nine o'clock on Mondays to figure out what's happening. Has there been change made? You have to stay encouraged. You have to move. You have to implement the change at a grassroots, at a level. You have to be aware. And this over time, over measured time, we can and we will change these systems. I am always honored to speak to you, to spend time to bring these issues to your awareness and to figure out how we can make our institutions work for ourselves, for the next generation and for our children, for our communities, because we have, for the most part, a good thing going in this country. And that's what I want to see continue, be it in the legal system, with our corporations. We don't have to give up. We don't have to be despondent. We can be change agents. We can be disruptors for good. And we can work together, avoid villainizing each other and avoid despondency. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. And until next time, be well. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney client relationship this information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances you should review your particular circumstances with an attorney all liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed